You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court gave residents of the tiny town of Opportunity, Montana, an answer in their decades-long court battle against one of the largest corporations in the world. The residents have been fighting to have Atlantic Richfield do additional cleanup of their property contaminated with arsenic and lead from decades of smelting operations. At the oral arguments, Chief Justice John Roberts pointed out the EPA's role. And yet someone else in your position would come in and say, well, you're not doing anything here. And so we're going to go ahead and do this. When the EPA's answer might simply be that, well, we haven't gotten to it yet, but we want to be the ones that decide what to do rather than the particular landowners there because we have a broader perspective affecting the whole site. But Justice Neil Gorsuch questioned whether the property rights of the residents were being infringed. Is there a takings claim, do you think, that arises from the government's um, position that uh, any remediation efforts for a period of, I guess, 45 years um, is prohibited by landowners? On Monday, the Supreme Court ruled that the landowners must first get approval from the EPA. Joining me is Pat Parento, a professor at the Vermont Law School. So who gets the win? The landowners, Atlantic Richfield, the EPA? So it's a split decision. (laughs) Each gets something out of it. The landowners have the right, says the Supreme Court, to proceed in state court to seek additional remedies or restoration for the contamination from the Atlantic Richfield site. Atlantic Richfield gets to argue that the state remedy or the additional landowner remedy cannot interfere with the EPA remedy, which, of course, Atlantic Richfield has agreed to implement, and EPA gets to keep control over the overall cleanup and make sure that what landowners might do in addition to what EPA has ordered to be done doesn't interfere with that. So everybody gets something. Chief Justice Roberts authored the majority opinion. What was his thinking? The Chief Justice was sympathetic to the landowners. And he thought that Congress had clearly carved out a remedy for landowners who felt like the EPA remedy didn't go far enough to protect them. And he said state courts and state-based remedies were permissible and that Congress did not seek to cut those off. Justice Alito wasn't as convinced of that, and I think he probably would have tossed the landowners out altogether. Justice Gorsuch was even more sympathetic to the landowners and felt like they should be able to proceed without EPA's permission or approval. So you saw really an interesting split among the conservative wing of the court. In this particular case, the liberals will sat there quietly. (laughs) They certainly went along with Roberts and not with Gorsuch. An interesting little bit of a split between Roberts and Gorsuch on this. Gorsuch said that the outcome in the case strips away ancient common law rights from innocent landowners and forces them to suffer toxic waste in their backyards, playgrounds, and farms. And there seemed to be a little bickering, shall we say, between Gorsuch and Roberts using the metaphor of a sandbox. Yes, a fight in the sandbox indeed. It was a testy exchange. Gorsuch is finding his voice, I think, on the court and being willing to stand up to the chief in this instance. He almost sounds like an environmentalist in this case, right? Worried about toxic sandboxes and so forth. You know, Gorsuch does reveal himself to be a strong believer in sort of the custom of law, common law, our heritage of law. We've seen that before in some of his opinions, and it's part of being, I think, 
a conservative judge who believes in property rights and a lot of his concern about giving the EPA too much control over whether what the landowner wants is permissible or not is a reflection of his anti-regulatory outlook on life. So not, not terribly surprising, but very strongly worded concurring and dissenting opinion for sure. The landowners can sue in state court under state law, but they need EPA approval. And how big a catch is that? As Alito pointed out in his concurring opinion, at this point, the landowners really can't proceed any further without EPA's sign-off. And EPA rejected the proposed uh, additional remedy that the landowners wanted before. So there's no reason to believe that EPA is, is going to approve at least what the landowners have previously proposed. Now, they may come up with a new proposal, but as they go back, you know, the Supreme Court has sent this back to the Montana Supreme Court for further proceedings, and it looks to me like either the landowners are, are going to have to go to EPA right now before they go any further in state court, or the state court is going to have to dismiss the landowner's case unless and until they get EPA's approval. That appears to be where we are at this point. So then so much depends on who's running the EPA and what the attitude of the EPA of the moment is. So that seems like a defeat for the landowners then. I think it's a partial defeat for sure. I mean, what they were counting on is is a green light to just go forward with their case and prove their case in state court and get an award from state court. And it doesn't look like they're going to be able to do that. And it also doesn't look like they're going to be able to persuade EPA of the kind of work that they want to do on their own property, which may, according to EPA, interfere with the approach that EPA has taken uh, to the cleanup of the site. And, of course, that's part of this big settlement agreement um, with Atlantic Richfield. And I think it's going to be hard to convince EPA that additional remedies are needed. But at least the Supreme Court has given the landowners the opportunity to try that. Does this decision give enough certainty to companies that if they agree to a cleanup plan with the EPA, that it's definite, that they don't have to worry about paying more in the future? No, it doesn't. And I think that's one thing that bothered Alito. It still leaves a crack in the door, you know, after how many years, some 20-some years, this site has been on the national priority list and being, quote, cleaned up, and the work's still not done. There's still many years left of work to do. So there's now still the uncertainty about whether a landowner could actually make a compelling argument, as you say, either to this EPA or to a future EPA, that the remedy doesn't go far enough for them and that their groundwater, their drinking water, or their use of water on their land is not safe. I mean, we are talking about arsenic, after all. This is a serious threat. So, yeah, I, I think this case does create uncertainty for settlements, particularly for these very expensive cleanups. Does the decision give enough guidance? Is it clear enough for federal courts, state courts that have to interpret it in the future? I don't think so. The case has left open the question, what would happen if the landowners propose a new plan for cleanup on their property that EPA disapproves? Can the landowners challenge the fact that EPA has refused to let them pursue that remedy or not? We don't know the answer to that. Thanks, Pat. That's Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School. The Supreme Court gave environmentalists a partial win on the scope of the Clean Water Act. Joining me is Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. So, Greg, this was about a water treatment facility in Hawaii. Tell us the background. 
the background is this this facility's in Maui it's about a half mile from the ocean and it dumps wastewater into wells underground and the water then travels uh, through the groundwater and eventually gets into the ocean and environmentalists say they have studies that show it is doing serious damage to coral reefs there and so the question is whether the federal clean water act uh, requires that the facility have get a federal permit to do that sort of thing and if they do have to they'll be subject to some significant restrictions did this turn on basically the interpretation of one word? It did, and the word is from. Uh, federal law, the Clean Water Act, says uh, that uh, if uh, pollution goes from what's known as a point source, which is a, you know, a kind of a main source of, of discharge, uh, to a, a waterway, then it's subject to the, the permitting requirements under the Clean Water Act. And so the question is, well, you know, here the, the treated wastewater didn't go directly into the ocean. It went through that half mile of groundwater first. And the question was basically, is that coming from the, the treatment facility? And so what did the justices decide? They decided, well, maybe. Um, you know, the, the argument was one a, a few months ago where the court didn't, the justices, at least the ones in the, in the middle of the court, uh, didn't seem to like either side's argument. Both sides kind of went too far. On one hand, you had the Trump administration and Maui County saying, look, it's got to be direct. If, if, the, if it doesn't go directly from the, the pipe into the, the river or the ocean or whatever, uh, then it doesn't qualify. And uh, meanwhile, the, the Federal Appeals Court in California, the Ninth Circuit, had said, well, as long as it's fairly traceable to that source, that's enough. And what the Supreme Court said was, you know, we're going we're gonna to say it doesn't have to be direct, but it needs to be functionally equivalent of direct. So if it's pretty close, if the facility, you know, dumps it out and it doesn't have to go very far to get into the ocean or the river or whatever, uh, that qualifies. And so they then kicked the case back to the, the, the Federal Appeals Court to figure out whether the Maui facility met that standard of being functionally equivalent to a direct discharge. So... That's a partial win for environmentalists in this case, but is it a full-blown win for environmentalists in the future when there are other cases like this? Uh, yeah, they seem uh, very happy with this. The, the lawyer, David Henkin, who argued the case, predicted that, that they're going to win when they go back to the appeals court and that this is you know, really a big victory uh, in that it, it keeps the Clean Water Act still operating to uh, regulate uh, some of these polluting facilities. The, the Trump administration's rule, and, and actually Maui County went even further, uh, would have sharply curtailed what the act covered, what EPA could regulate, what environmental groups could sue over, uh, given that this is a pretty conservative court environmentalists had reason to fear they might have had a result like that, but it didn't turn out that way. Uh, instead, the, the court left still a, a fairly robust Clean Water Act. And the decision was six to three. What was the lineup? Yeah, so it was the court's liberals in the majority with Stephen Breyer writing the opinion, and they were joined by John Roberts, the Chief Justice, and Brett Kavanaugh, 
so, you know, this is a case where we kind of have a court that we might have predicted when Kavanaugh joined the court, where at least occasionally um, the liberals would, would win victories, bringing over the relative moderate justices, Kavanaugh and Roberts, the, the more conservative ones, Gorsuch, Thomas, Alito, dissented, uh, said that the, the, the Clean Water Act is, is not as expansive as the majority said. I wonder if the liberals cheer every time Justice Roberts sides with them, secretly. I'm sure they're, they're, they're at least relieved. And, you know, I, I think, you know, Justice like Breyer, who wrote this opinion, um, you know, clearly uh, thinks and knows he can work with the Chief Justice in at least some cases. There are some cases where they're just not going to see it eye to eye. But here you could sort of see them going back and forth during the argument back in the fall where, um, you know, the chief justice clearly wasn't satisfied with what either side of the in the case was arguing, uh, but but he was also wondering whether Justice Breyer's standard that he he, he threw out, which he, during the argument uh, was going to be specific enough, and apparently Justice Breyer persuaded him uh, that indeed there were uh, clear enough standards that we could go with this functionally equivalent standard tell you that what happens behind the scenes is often far more interesting than what we get to see from the oral arguments and from the decisions. The Supreme Court overturned a decades-old precedent deciding that states must require unanimous juries to convict defendants of serious crimes. But the 6-3 decision highlighted deep divides among the justices over adhering to their past opinions. Joining me is Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. So, Greg, tell us a little about the case. There were two states, Louisiana and Oregon, that for some crimes still said that an 11-to-1 or even a 10-to-2 jury verdict is enough to convict somebody. And the Supreme Court, uh, overruling a 1972 ruling that had allowed states to do that, they said that is a violation of the Constitution's Sixth Amendment. Greg, it was an unusual lineup, six to three, with Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Samuel Alito and Elena Kagan in the dissent. Was their dissent related to the issues presented or to whether precedent should be followed here? It was really about the latter. Uh, Justice Alito wrote for the group, and most of what he focused on was not whether the 1972 decision was correct, but whether this would be too much of a burden on Louisiana and Oregon to have to change their systems and to have some convictions called into question. Justice Alito said that there was a real reliance interest, that there were thousands of cases that could potentially be upended or at least affected by this ruling. And that notion of adherence to precedent, stare decisis, is something that is one of the most important issues for the court going forward. It's very interesting to me that that was how they divided in this case. Well, Justice Kagan has been sort of talking up the importance of precedence for a while, but seeing the chief and Alito agreeing with her about precedent, does that bode well for some of the cases the court is going to decide involving, for example, abortion rights? It's at least a marker. It's very, very interesting. Justice Kagan is really the court's champion of stare decisis right now. She consistently says, let's not overturn precedents, let's not overturn precedents. Justice Alito is somebody who has been willing to overturn precedents. You may recall he wrote the ruling a couple years ago in a case called Janus that said that if you're a government employee, you have a constitutional right not to pay fees to your union to cover the cost of representation, and that overturned an earlier Supreme Court decision. 
and then Chief Justice Roberts is somebody who you can sort of see Justice Kagan often trying to persuade, to bring over onto her side. He is somebody who also doesn't want to overturn more precedents than the court really needs to. So it's a bit of a motley collection there, but definitely something worth watching going forward. Now, Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the opinion for the court, and he said that stare decisis isn't supposed to be the art of methodically ignoring what everyone knows to be true. Yeah, he made the Interesting. point. <laughs> yeah, he made the point that nobody was really defending this 1972 ruling. It was a bit of an odd one. It was a case called Apodaca, where the ruling was 414, and the one was Justice Lewis Powell, who adopted an approach that really nobody else agreed with. And over the ensuing decades, the court pretty clearly, as a whole, didn't agree with his approach. And yet, that precedent still stood, letting states allow non-unanimous jury verdicts. So Justice Gorsuch was making the point that look, nobody agrees that this should still be the law here. You know, we shouldn't do some mechanical application of of stare decisis and stick with it. We should do what's right and, and overturn it. So now only two states, Louisiana and Oregon, have this kind of a rule. So what does this mean on the ground? Yeah, and and they don't even have it for everything. Uh, Louisiana, for example, requires unanimity for crimes committed in 2019 or later, so this only applied to previous crimes. One issue the Supreme Court left open is whether it will apply retroactively to convictions that have already gone up on appeal and been finalized. Justice Gorsuch suggested pretty strongly that it would not apply retroactively, and Justice Kavanaugh, in a concurring opinion, flat out said it would not apply retroactively. Proactively. But the dissent by Justice Alito said, boy, I'm not so sure about that. You know, based on our precedent, it might apply retroactively. And that's what I'm really worried about is this prospect that thousands of convictions will be uh, overturned. How about the prospect that in the controversial cases that are coming up, we're going to see a lot of opinions? Yeah, this really doesn't bode well for, for the court speaking with consensus-type <laughs> opinions. They were all over the map. We haven't even talked about <laughs> some of the other opinions, uh, Justice Thomas, Justice Sotomayor. You know, a lot of people wanted to say something. This court hasn't yet sort of hit its rhythm in terms of having justices agreeing with one another on large numbers of points. We're still at the point with this court where we have a lot of different justices going off in different directions, and we saw that in this opinion. So which justice did not write a concurring opinion? Oh, let's see. Or dissenting. (laughs) Justice Ginsburg didn't write. Justice Breyer didn't write. They just went along with what Justice Gorsuch said. One of the interesting dynamics of this is that, with the exception of Justice Kagan, the more liberal justices were with Justice Gorsuch in the majority. Part perhaps because this is an issue that a lot of people think, including Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, ends up hurting racial minorities. It hurts black defendants and jurors because it means that if there's only one or two black jurors on a jury and they take a different view from the majority, that they may not be able to stop a guilty verdict from going forward. Thanks, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.